You can go ahead and turn to John 13. Last week we saw very clearly that we live in a world that thinks often that love is something that is, it never makes a judgment. It's never to be questioned. It's to be affirmed simply on subjective or one's own terms. And if that's true, commitment that really cost you has become in our world increasingly rare. So we, we live and we breathe in a world in which when the going gets tough, people often simply get going on their separate ways. I was recently reading through Second Chronicles and Ezra, and what struck me as I read those books was the songs that were sung by the temple choir, by God's people in various chapters of those books to celebrate the Lord. And the refrain in every one of those songs is, for the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. For his steadfast love endures. Now, think of that. Centuries ago, God's people sang praise to God, God of the Bible, because they in their lives had experienced and known how his love kept going even when they had not kept going in theirs. How different is the love of the God we meet in his word from the love and the commitments that we know all too well in this world and if we're honest, in our own hearts? What does this love have to teach us? This morning, we're going to think about that as we finish John chapter 13, verses 18 through 38. Jesus has now washed his disciples' feet, and now he's going to predict to his disciples two very costly events that are coming. He will be betrayed, and he will be denied. And in the midst of this, we learn more of Jesus's costly love and commitment to his own, what that love teaches us. Here's what I want you to get. Here's kind of the one sentence this morning. To his own, Jesus committed himself to costly love. To his own, Jesus committed himself to costly love. And Jesus commands that love of us. Jesus commands that love of us. So two points this morning. Love in the midst of betrayal and love in the midst of denial. Love in the midst of betrayal. Love in the midst of denial. Let's begin by seeing love in the midst of betrayal. And this is verses 18 through 30. Look down at verse 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. 
He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When we come to this passage, Jesus is again distinguishing. He's making distinctions. He's already done this in this chapter between the world, the beginning of chapter 13, and his own. But now, verse 18, he says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. This is not a choosing as it relates to salvation, but a choosing as it relates to the disciples, one of whom will turn on Jesus. And Jesus understands everything that is happening in light of the scriptures, the Old Testament. He knows at this point, all of it is about him. So there in verse 18, he cites Psalm 41, which Chad read to us earlier. It's a psalm in which King David writes in part about being betrayed by a close friend. King David says they shared bread together, a sign of friendship. And this friend, most likely Ahitophel, betrayed him. And Jesus understood that when he read of King David, the anointed one of God, who was betrayed, who was lonely, whom others sought after for his death, Jesus knew that he was repeating that he was fulfilling the patterns and the person of King David's life. So at this point in that evening, he's washed his disciples' feet, and now he very deliberately predicts his betrayal. He wants his disciples prepared for the cross. He wants them to understand he does not go to the cross as a helpless victim. Rather, so that they will not doubt, he tells them ahead of time 
that they might believe. Verse 19, so that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. It literally reads, you may believe I am. The he is supplied in in English. He is deliberately using the name that Yahweh in Exodus 3 used to reveal himself to Moses to make known to his disciples who he truly is. One with God, who is God. Preparing his disciples, predicting exactly what will happen. See his love even in that. He's preparing his disciples. So God does not reveal truth to us about the future so that we will speculate or run to the newspapers, but so that we will trust him, believe in him, that he really does reign over every moment of our lives. Do you believe that? If Jesus reigned over his own betrayal and death, does he not reign over every moment of of your life? Jesus is going to die, and he's going to die with the fullness of his authority. And there in verse 20, he makes this connection between someone receiving the one he sends with receiving him and receiving him with receiving the father who sent Jesus. So Jesus understands and says he is one with the father. His disciples will be one with him when sent out into the world and his authority comes behind their message. So what does it mean to receive Jesus? It means to believe the apostles' message, the apostolic message. Just as Jesus is the word of God to the world, so those who receive him believe him, believe and find life in his name and under his word. It will never do to separate Jesus from the full counsel of his word, whether that's in the New or the Old Testament. In the old, we're prepared for Jesus. In the new, we understand the implications of his life and his work. And as we live as faithful exiles in the world. So before the cross, as he knows betrayal is coming, he is now preparing his disciples to discern who's with him and who's against him. Remarkably. The Jesus who predicted his own betrayal to reveal his divinity is, verse 21, the same deeply human Jesus who's troubled in his spirit as this costly betrayal actually is about to come about. Judas's betrayal of Jesus was costly. It affected Jesus deeply in his soul. Judas was a disciple and a friend. 
before he ever became a betrayer. There were very personal costs and losses in going to the cross. And what's so interesting is that Judas never gave any indication. He simply blended in. Verse 22, the disciples are uncertain of whom Jesus speaks. Remember, there was awkwardness when Jesus washed their feet. There's awkwardness now about who's going to do this to Jesus. It's not even clear. They understand what Jesus means. They they may have thought this would happen by mistake. The disciple whom Jesus loved there in verse 22 is, is generally understood to be John, who wrote this gospel. Obviously does not mean Jesus didn't love the others, but there was some special affinity and love that he had for John. We, we learn he was reclining in the same way that Lazarus reclined next to Jesus. I think it's interesting that John does not identify himself as the disciple who loved Jesus, but as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how John understood himself, fundamentally, deeply, as someone whom Jesus loved. And it shaped him. It reminds me of Paul in Galatians 2 when he's writing about what it means to live by faith in the Son of God, he breaks out and says, who loved me and gave himself up for me? That is what it means to be a disciple. It's to be someone who understands, who's been changed deeply by this reality that you've been loved by Jesus. Love that had a shape. It took concrete expression in the cross. How did that affect John, Paul, the disciples? It made them bold in the cross. It made them confident because of the cross. It made them see the whole world through the lens of the cross. It caused them to see just how sinful their sin really was. And that Jesus took that upon himself on the cross. Those who know they've been loved by Jesus know that this love came at great cost. And so when we as his disciples understand this, we no longer side with sin. We no longer take up its cause. We no longer call what is evil good or what is good evil, no matter what the wisdom of the whole world says. Because we understand what Jesus has done, what it means at the cross. So to be loved by Jesus is to be transformed by Jesus in your life, yes, but fundamentally in your loves. Because you understand that love took shape at the cross. And so we live our lives beneath the cross. Jesus loves his own such that each one of his own can say, we've been loved by Jesus. Can you say that? 
not just a Jesus of your imagination or a Jesus that you keep out there, but one that you know has personally died for you on the cross? Is that a thought for you as a Christian that profoundly and deeply shapes the way you understand yourself? Be so weary of anyone that speaks of the love of Jesus, but divorces that love from the cross. Grace that we know there, the demands that that rightly makes on our lives. Once again, it's Simon Peter. He spoke already to give voice to what everyone was thinking when Jesus washed their feet. Now he's, he's clearly motioning to John. Ask Jesus, who will betray him? And so that's what John does in verse 25. Lord, who is it? Now they were most likely at a large banquet table. Here's John next to Jesus. I think he asked this very quietly. And instead of saying Judas, Jesus replied most likely quietly to him. That the betrayer, verse 26, is the, the one to whom he will give the morsel of bread. Now, this morsel becomes very significant. Verse 26, it's when he dips the morsel, he gives it to Judas. Verse 27, after Judas had taken the morsel, Satan enters him. This morsel of bread was often reserved for a guest of honor at the banquet. And on this night, Jesus gives it to the very disciple who will betray him. It's almost as if Jesus is saying to Judas one last time, I know, Judas, I know what is happening better than you do. I know what, I know who you are up against better than you know. And Judas, you can still turn. You can still believe in me and return. Take this bread given to Judas from the one who had declared openly, I am the bread of life. Some have wondered that if Satan introduces Judas, as the text says, why or is Judas responsible? Well, you must see up to this very moment, Judas has had many opportunities to believe in Jesus. In his refusal to respond to Jesus, he's opened himself up to be used by, to be possessed by Satan. Betraying Jesus was and is a satanic act. Now, that is not the kind of language that is used in some of your cultures. It is the kind of language that is used often in your cultures. But clearly, the scriptures reveal that satanic influence and power is at work in this fallen world. And it also reveals that because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we should not be obsessed with it. But because there had to be a death and a resurrection of Jesus, we should not ever underestimate it. Jesus came to defeat sin, but he also came to defeat unseen powers that have authority in the present age in which we live. Satan enters into Jesus to bring about the cross. The one who ate 
bread with Jesus is here about to lift his heel against Jesus. And Jesus, who has all power, doesn't try to stop him. To love his own, he knows he must walk through betrayal. So he says to Judas, verse 27, what you're going to do, do quickly. Judas, do this quickly, maybe even quicker than you had planned. Here we see that Judas is responsible for this. And at the same time, he's carrying out what Jesus has predicted. Disciples don't understand what's happening from the cross to this betrayal. They they think, we see in verse 29, that he's giving Judas, who's the treasurer, instructions about buying food or, or giving to the poor. We see here, even in the midst of everything being prepared by Jesus himself, just how unaware, how blindsided the disciples are by what's coming. But Jesus isn't. Now think of this. He has lowered himself to wash Judas's feet. He's honored Judas publicly by giving him this bread. And it was meant to serve Judas in that moment. It's meant to serve the disciples and us as we look back to understand his love. John wanted his first readers to know it. Verse 30, after receiving the morsel, Judas immediately went out. He receives what was for the guest of honor. He goes out away from the presence of Jesus himself, and it was night. In John's gospel, the night represents spiritual darkness. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, a man in the darkness, and he goes out in the darkness. Judas, in the presence of the light of the world, chooses darkness, and now controlled by the darkness when he goes out into the night. Jesus predicts his betrayal. Jesus is deeply troubled by this betrayal. He loves his own in the midst of this betrayal. Costly love. Love that presses on in the midst of what must have been for him the most intense personal pain and betrayal. And Jesus does not want his disciples then or now to think that he's somehow a helpless victim before all of this. He rules over it because he knows there is a greater good he will achieve on the cross. Very pointedly, for you, brother or sister, personal betrayal did not stop your Savior from loving you in the most costly of ways. If he reigned over his own betrayal, does he not reign over that detail, that circumstance, that confusion or pain in your life? His love is a committed love, a costly love. He can only do what is good for those to whom he has committed himself. For great is the steadfast love of the Lord. Love in the midst of betrayal. 
and love in the midst of denial. Look down at verse 31, our second point. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Judas's going out has set in motion the hour of darkness. It's here in this passage that the farewell discourse, Jesus's final words to his disciples, begins. It's Judas' departure that marks a decisive moment in time such that Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. God is glorified in him. Not what we would expect Jesus to say. How can he predict his portrayal? How can Judas go to betray him? And then Jesus speak of himself as the unique Son of Man being glorified. What does it mean? Do you remember back in chapter 12, there were some Gentiles who came to the disciples and said, Sirs, we would see Jesus. And in response to that, Jesus said, Now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. To see Jesus in his glory is to see him on the cross. As the unique divine Son of Man, his glory will be seen. His Father's glory will be seen in him when he dies on the cross. He was sent into the world. He came into the world to die. And verse 32, if God is glorified in him, God will glorify Jesus in himself. So when we think of glory, we think of the praise we receive. Manchester City won the FA Cup last night. Thousands praised them, but some, even in this room, would not. So one are the Father and the Son with each other, that their glory is received in love through self-giving. A glory, a love that moves outward. Unlike the glory of this world, this is what is happening in the Godhead before the world began. The Father and the Son with the Spirit delighted in a self-giving love and an 
the radiance of God's glory, the brilliance of the glory of God, it goes forward through the sun, putting this glory on display on the cross. What kind of a God chooses the cross as the place and the point where his glory is most clearly seen, put on display? It's the kind of God who wants his glory displayed in the most costly, self-giving love for others. The kind of God whose love is utterly realistic. And at every point, he loves to the uttermost. Kind of God who displays his glory, who delights for his glory to be seen in giving and in the goodness of his lavish, outgoing love. Not a God who takes, but who gives. And when we stare at the cross and all of its fullness, it really is like and surpasses the greatest diamond, which as when you turn it and you look at it, you only see more of the brilliance and the depths and dimensions of the glory of the God who really is. Every turn, you, you never see an imperfection, only perfection. So if you would see Jesus in all of his glory and his fullness, keep staring at the cross. And then be amazed at the way that changes the way you see glory. The way you treasure, the glories you treasure. Is your life characterized by the glories of this world and this age or the glory of the cross? Now, to those of you who, who are younger, and I'm going to leave that there so you can decide if that's you. I think all of us should listen in. Whose glory is your life about? You, you know well that this world holds out to you glories, whether it's popularity or attraction or yourself or certain values. And they're so glorified in this world. They're at odds with the cross. There are paths of salvation that are at odds with the glory of the cross. They reject the cross. And you've got to choose. Are you going to treasure and love the glories of this world? Or will you be mastered by, loved by? Will you treasure the glory of the one whose wisdom and power comes from the cross? All of us should be asking what glory is being made much of in our life or by that path or that belief. Whose glory do you really treasure? What glory is your life about? As Martin Luther grasped this, he contrasted a theologian of the cross with a theologian of glory. As a theologian of the cross, you see who God is, you see who we are, you see how God saves at the cross. But a theologian of glory places great weight on man's ability and reason. The one who glories in the cross looks outside of himself completely for a righteousness that is not our own for salvation. That's what the cross is saying to us. That before the God who really is, the God before whom we have to stand and give account, 
We cannot save ourselves. It, it, it tells us something very different from what this world says when it constantly tells us to look inside ourselves. Cross frees us to see there's, there's no righteousness in us. It frees us to see that God gets glory in giving a salvation fully to those who know they cannot save themselves. And we receive this by faith, by turning from what we would have relied on in our own merit or committed to in our own sin and trusting in the Son of God. And that is glorious news, that Jesus Christ has fully accomplished the salvation we need but cannot earn fully in his life and death on the cross. Very simply, the cross says to you, you don't have a righteousness to offer up to God. The cross frees you to see your righteousness is a joke. And it frees you to see God's righteousness as a gift to you. God gets glory. The son is glorified when we put faith in the son of God who took our unrighteousness on himself and credits us with his righteousness. Believe him. The glory of this world or the glory of the cross. Jesus means for us to be theologians of the cross by which we see his glory. Brothers and sisters, don't grow weary in this world of living underneath the cross, reasoning by God's revelation of wisdom in the cross. Uh, we of all people don't grow weary in holding out the cross. Why? It's all we've got. And it's enough. Are you clear about the cross? Are you confusing about the cross? Are you hiding the cross? Are you ashamed of the cross? Would you say that as you look at your life, that what motivates you makes much of the cross? Or does it make much of a lesser glory? It's so counterintuitive. When we live our lives underneath the cross, strangely, we know the deepest joys the deepest satisfaction. We know the deepest safety. I mean, think of all this evil from Judas betraying him to, to those who he betrayed him to that leads to the cross. How all of that is working for our greater good and God's greater glory. Son's glory, Father's glory, all converging at the cross. And Jesus loves these disciples. He calls them his little children. In verse 33, and he wants them prepared. He, he, it's like he's leaving his family. Where I'm going, you cannot come. But in his going, he's teaching them what should characterize their living. Famously, a new commandment, love one another. As I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And this is how the world will know who his disciples are if you have love for one another. God's people have been commanded about love up to this point in their history. They have been told in Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The newness of the command is it's just as Jesus has loved us. Don Carson writes, the new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it. 
and put it into practice. He's loved them, hasn't he, by washing their feet, by predicting his own betrayal. He's ultimately going to love them in the context of death on the cross. Love one another as I have loved you. Now that is totally beyond us. We do not have the power to do this. The cross purchases and empowers this love. And it's striking that Jesus says the world will know that we are his disciples by the fact that we love one another as he has loved us. It's true in the earliest church, they were known, they were marked out by their love. If you have done this, you know it's hard. It's not based on your self-interest. It's not based on natural affinity. It's It's a sacrificial love in which the other person's good is in view. That's what marks Jesus at the cross. He's concerned for others. He's concerned for the messianic community the cross will bring about. So the newness of the command is in light of the self-giving love of Jesus, who's laying down his life. He's lowered himself to become man. He's lowering himself even further at the cross. As I loved you, love one another. First, we understand how he's loved us. This frees us to love one another. This is what we aim for together. For the good of the world and the glory of Jesus, committed, covenanted love and life together. We commit to one another, brothers and sisters, as members of the body, we will be devoted to one another in brotherly love. With humility and gentleness, we will patiently bear with each other, forgiving, encouraging, and building one another up, exercising watchfulness over each other, admonishing one another when necessary. It gives biblical shape, expression, form to our commitment. So you grow in this love. You learn to live in this kind of love in the safety of the body. So just as you stay away, maybe you live life on the edges here. Do you realize you're withholding what we need from you in this body? Your presence matters. Your eye contact, the conversation that you bring, the gift that you have, it all matters. Even when what you bring here is your need. It gives the body the chance to love you in sacrificial commitment. And the way Jesus has loved us, Jesus's wisdom is that the world knows more about who he is by the way we love one another. Some years ago, we as a a church had the joy of seeing a man and his wife from this region come to faith. She, the, the wife, through a number of relationships in the church, she came to faith first, and then he started to come into the church community more and more. So they both were hearing the gospel and then they were seeing the power of the gospel displayed in the love and the relationships in this body. Now, I remember very distinctly talking to him after he came to faith and 
wanting to hear him articulate the ways the Lord had uniquely worked in his life, I'll never forget what he said. He said, as he spent time in this church, I thought to myself, this must be the kingdom of God because I've never seen people love each other the way that you all do. I was floored by the impact of that love on him. And I shouldn't have been because this really is Jesus's evangelism plan. The church, he was seeing the power of the gospel as he was hearing the power of the gospel. We'll never be wiser than Jesus. It's why we pray for and we aim for more biblical churches. He realizes he's going to the cross. What's on his mind is teaching his disciples about their life together after it and how their love should be displayed to the world. They're not going to understand fully until after the cross. They don't understand in the moment. Instead of asking some profound question about this love that Jesus has commanded, Peter simply says, where are you going? It's Peter and Jesus. You cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. He has so much zeal. He has so little wisdom. His desire is so commendable. He's sad his master and teacher is leaving, but he's offering something up to Jesus that he cannot possibly deliver on. Jesus is preparing his disciples for when he will lay his life down for them. And Peter is concerned with telling Jesus he will lay his life down for him. He's not understand fully how deeply he needs to be washed by Jesus. Relevant for us very much is that you can be so busy in your own soul trying to do something for Jesus and neglect and even before resting deeply in what Jesus has done for you. You you can be so busy wanting to lay your life down for Jesus that you just lose sight of the glory and the, the goodness of the fact that Jesus has laid down his life for you. And so your, your Christian life becomes more and more what you're doing for Jesus, what you must do for Jesus. Peter had to learn the correct order. So must we. He has no idea in his untested zeal what the cross of Christ will demand from him. He must wash your feet. He must lay his life down for you before you lay anything down for him. And here's Jesus simply wanting Peter to receive from him, not give anything for him. In the death and the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus, we are free to receive from him before we ever give anything for him. I think maybe for some of us, we've moved so far past thinking that we need to receive that we only think about giving, but we never move beyond receiving from Jesus. We just go deeper in the gospel. The gospel frees us from ever thinking we've got to repay anything. It frees us to simply receive and get off that treadmill of trying to do for him. And so receive his love. Jesus knew Judas. He knows Peter. He loves Peter. And he's so committed to his love for Peter that he's exposing Peter to himself. 
He, he wants Peter to see how much he needs Jesus. And he will see it by way of the cross. Jesus asked, will you lay your life down for me? Peter doesn't know it, but he will. He'll do exactly that decades later when he has personally walked with Jesus, when his zeal is then matched by a much more realistic and godly wisdom. The same Peter, decades later, near the end of his life, is going to write of God, of his divine power that has granted to us all things for life and godliness. Now, just consider Jesus' steadfast love for Peter in that moment. He was committed to bringing Peter to that very day when he would be filled with that wisdom, when he would write to Christians in that way. By that point, Peter will not only confess Jesus, he will gladly lay his life down for him. But not that night. The rooster would crow three times, and Peter will have denied him. Jesus predicted his betrayal. He predicted his denial, and he loved his own in the midst of all of it. All of it, the context for the new command, just as I've loved you, love one another. Consider how much better we understand this love in the cross, in the light of the cross, how it must shape the way that we love one another here. When you think of John 13, think of the costly ways it meant for Jesus to love his own to the end. The costly committed love that would drive him to go on to the cross. And then live your life as a Christian tethered to the cross. Seeing the world in light of the cross and loving each other by the power of the cross.